I, I bring greetings from my family, uh, but also the many people that have left the branch over the years and now are at home with me at Henson. Um, so it is, it is truly, though, a joy to be able to come down here um, and bring God's word. If you have not turned there yet, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 128, uh, because that is where we are going to camp out this morning. So what does it mean to live a blessed life? I mean, how do you even achieve that? Listen to Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. A few weeks ago, Doug asked me if I'd be willing to come down and preach at the branch. Uh, and I said yes, right away, without even knowing what the text was. Uh, and then he gave me the text, Psalm 128. And I remember sitting there reading it and then rereading it and started second-guessing myself. Should I have said yes? Why? Because if I'm honest, after the initial read, I was like, I'm not exactly sure what to do with this text. Uh, because I know at face value I'm confident to not go the route that, okay, we should expect every blessing possible and have wife and children and as much money and blessing and everything where we end up just turning God into this Oprah Winfrey character of the prosperity gospel where it's you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. Because then the application becomes, well, if you're not experiencing blessing, maybe you're struggling with fertility issues or struggling with relationships in general or hate your job. Well, it's just because you don't fear God enough. And you just need to obey more. And then you'll be healthy. Then you'll be wealthy. You'll have everything you want. Yet the other side of the pendulum that I think our camp can so often hang out in is that, well, okay, everything is just looking to the future. Everything's eschatological and this future blessing in heaven. So yeah, you're going to be blessed, but, but not yet. I mean, we look at our life and oftentimes we see struggle after struggle. America is a post-Christian nation. We're asking God, where, where is this blessing that you speak of? So we really doubt that Psalm 128 can be tangible in the here and now. A future hope with no present reality. Yet arguably, neither of these approaches actually honor the psalm. I believe there's a middle way, a balanced approach as we look at Psalm 128. And it's helpful to note that Psalm 128, it's a wisdom psalm. And wisdom literature is diverse. You've got the Proverbs. They pretty much tell you, okay, if you, if you do good and honor God, good things are going to happen. But then you have Job. A man who honors God is seen as blameless, and it seems like everything is taken from him. Job ultimately shows us that general truths 
are not universal truths. And so to appropriately sit in Psalm 128 is to feel the tension in both of those realities. It's to recognize that though these things are generally true, they are not always true. But it's to recognize that God does bless his people in the here and now. And God does bless his people in the future, in eternity. Ultimately, it's to read this psalm in light of the now and not yet reality. And so with this in our minds, we come to Psalm 128 this morning. And I want us to spend the rest of our time sitting in this idea that the fear of the Lord leads to blessing. The fear of the Lord actually does lead to blessing. And we see the psalmist really address this kind of in three different relational spheres. We're going to begin zoomed in in verses 1 and 2 looking at the individual. Then we'll kind of zoom out a little bit, as he does, to looking at verses 3 and 4, the family. And then third, in verses 5 and 6, we'll look at the church as he zooms out once again. The fear of the Lord leads to blessing. And we see that as we look at the individual. Verses 1 and 2 state, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Verse 1 really serves as this thesis for the entire psalm. I mean, the psalmist is saying, well, do you want to be blessed? Let me tell you how you experience that. One, you fear the Lord, and two, you walk in his ways. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? So often when we think of fears, we're prone to think of terror. We're prone to think of our phobias. And it's a state of mind that we don't want to stay in. Rather, we often try to do everything we can to avoid it. I mean, if you're afraid of flying, then you're like, I love long road trips. (laughs) If you're afraid of heights, well, it's really easy to just stay planted on the ground. If you're afraid of the unknowns, then it's, I've got my 5, 10, and 15-year plan. Afraid of commitment? Well, just don't pursue any serious dating relationships. Is that what the fear of the Lord means? That we're actually supposed to avoid God? I mean, he is perfect. He is holy. Do we run from him? No, the fear of the Lord is actually the opposite of that. It's a fear that draws us near him. Instead of running from, it's running to, it's clinging to him. I often think of this idea of you standing on this mountainside. And there's the drop off to the right of you. And so what do you do? In the awe and grandeur of the mountain, you actually cling to the mountain as you are walking along that pass. You don't want to slip. And so you hold on for dear life. And the fear of the Lord carries that connotation with Christ being the mountain that we cling to, that we hold to. The fear of the Lord is a reverence for God. It's recognizing that he has the place and power in our life. And with that comes the posture of humility and repentance. I think we can define the fear of the Lord simply as the reverent submission that leads to obedience. Reverent submission that leads to obedience. Because as the psalmist says... It's the one that fears the Lord is also the one who walks in his ways. See, how you live your life actually reveals what you fear. So what does your life say about your fears? What we fear controls our life because we orient our life around it. 
So do you fear God? Or do you fear something else? Or oftentimes, someone else. I think for many of us, our, our major struggle is actually not be consumed with the fear of God, but a fear of man. And fear of man happens every time we just replace God with somebody else. God's the one to receive worship, the one to give us our identity, show us what it means to be loved, what it means to be in relationship. And yet so often we take what should be God's and we become afraid of what other people think of us. We allow other people to define us, which is ultimately giving them that power and that awe and that worship that is supposed to be God's. Our fear of man trumps our fear of God. I mean, this happens when we become like a chameleon and change who we are to fit where we are. I'm one person in class. I'm another person at my work. I'm another person at church and my home life, just always morphing to fit the need. It happens when we're asked about a controversial topic, yet we avoid answering the question because we know that what our view is and what the biblical view is not going to align with what culture's view is. We don't want to be labeled a bigot. It's when we struggle to never say no to someone or something because we want to please that person. Because ultimately the people pleasing in us is us just again aligning ourselves to that person and their needs and their cares above actually what God is calling us to do. It's avoiding having spiritual, let alone gospel conversations with one of our friends because we're worried that that conversation might not go well and our friendship with that person will be affected negatively. And we don't want that to happen. See, in each of these situations, we elevate man above God. And the psalmist argues that, well, if we want to experience God's blessing, it's actually orient our lives to live for him, to allow the fear of the Lord to drive our thoughts. And so how do we grow in our fear of the Lord? Well, it begins with God. It begins with understanding actually who God is. That he is the creator and sustainer. That he and he alone is the one that actually knits you together in your mother's womb. That he is truth. He is the perfect, righteous judge. He reigns over all and in all. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He's patient. He's loving. And as we meditate on, on the character of God, as we see his grandeur, his attributes, his works, that naturally leads us to an awe and reverence for God. It helps us center on him. And so that all these other fears start to pale in comparison as we see God for who he is. And this is a God that actually wants relationship with you. Because as we meditate on God, we also see who we are in Christ. Christ died for you and me. And this alone is enough, I think, to orient our lives around him. We recognize that his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His identity, our identity. So you have put your faith in Christ. You are God's child, his son, his daughter, his beloved. And it, it's these foundational pieces that allow us to look at God in reverence and awe. This idea of actually fearing him. Reverence and mission leads to obedience. Right thinking leads to right acting. And this means that we actually begin to live out the hard truths 
and doctrines of Scripture. We take a stand on Scripture's understanding of marriage, sexuality, gender, even though we recognize that culture might see us as intolerant, as misunderstood, as mischaracterized, ostracized by the world. It now morphs us to caring more about somebody's salvation than their opinion of me. See, Christian, all fears take your life, except for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord gives you life. It brings you blessing. And we see in verse 1, he says that blessed is everyone. No one has a monopoly on the blessing of the Lord, but it's everyone who fears the Lord. And we see in verse 2 that the, the psalmist zooms in on this individual's blessing. He says, it's a blessing on your work. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. I mean, last week in Psalm 127, we saw really that everything that you do is in vain unless the Lord is in it. And this week, in many ways, we're kind of seeing the flip side of that coin. That if you fear and obey God, nothing will be in vain. This feels like this reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. I mean, Adam falls and he's cursed. The ground is cursed. The work will be painful. Thorns and thistles will abound. And yet here, the one who fears the Lord, he says, well, your work will be a blessing. And it shall be well with you. And yet we notice here that he does say it is the work of our hands. It's recognizing that as we work, the Lord works. We work in tandem. And God is the God of laborers. You see, this, this verse in many ways maps on to also the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Where he says, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What the psalmist is saying is, is work hard and enjoy your work because work is actually a blessing from the Lord. Yeah, we recognize that fearing of the Lord doesn't just mean blessing for the individual. Rather, this blessing is expanded onto the family. Verses 3 and 4. Your life will be like a fruitful vine. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So the, zoom, the psalmist zooms out from the individual to the family. And specifically, he's speaking to husbands here, reiterating the fact that it's not just a blessing of work, but it's actually, if you fear the Lord, you're going to experience blessing in your family, to your wife and your children. Again, to the wife, he says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine in your house. And though I'm not suggesting that you are a fruitful vine in our house, will be the next best-selling Valentine's Day card. It gets at this blessing and the emphasis behind it. He's ultimately saying that the fruitfulness of the wife points really to the bearing of many children, but it conveys way more than that. I really appreciate the way one commentator put it, where he said, the psalm is promising that however hard the day-to-day work in the field may be for a laboring man, to come home to a good wife, is somewhat like coming home to a harvest. And he says, your children will be like olive shoots 
around the table. And what's helpful to note is we don't do much in the way of olive trees here, but with olive trees, you have the main trunk, and then as it ages, you actually will get these shoots that start coming out of the base of the tree. And olive trees take a really, really long time to care for and mature. But the emphasis is if you care for those shoots, if, if you treat them well and really nurture them, those shoots will actually grow up to be like that father, will grow up to be like the main trunk and also be a profitable olive tree. It's almost a saying that you will have young children spring up around you, children to care for and to nurture, to raise up into a fruit-bearing tree. See, both this vine and this olive shoot carry the biblical images of abundant life, symbolizing rich blessing. So the question we have to sit in is, do we actually see our family as a blessing? And I want to specifically talk to the husbands and dads in the room. Your family is a blessing from the Lord. Now, do you actually embrace that and live that out? After a long day at work or the end of a long week, I typically come home and my tank is usually not that full. And I'm ready to just come into the house and sit down and, you know, have a conversation with my wife, Anna, um, and really do nothing. Yet I have three kids at home and Jack is clumsily trying to walk over to me. Ford is already on top of me, climbing all over. And Ivy, for the 15th time, is asking me, do you want to play with me? And oftentimes in those moments, I'm like, no, I don't. I do not want to play with you. I just give me some face, please. And, and this, this psalm has really challenged me this week for how I think about my family. And that mindset, even as I come through the door after a long day, am I viewing my family as a blessing or am I viewing them as, yeah, they're great, but really you're just an inconvenience at the moment. Oftentimes I can feel my own frustration and annoyance beginning to surface. And then we come to a song like this, that my wife and my children are an actual blessing from God. So dads, what would it look like this week to actually not just view your children as a blessing, but to live out like they are a blessing? And moms, this, the same go to you. What would it look like to view your children as a blessing? And especially if you're a stay-at-home mom, by the end of the day, you're like... I'm ready for my husband to come home so I can get a break. But what does it look like to actually recognize day in and day out that if you have children, if God has given you that, that is a huge blessing to embrace. And not only does this imagery convey abundant life, but we also are seeing this olive shoot, this vine. We're seeing this garden imagery. And in many ways, the psalmist is saying that your family is like a garden for the Lord. And uh, this spring, Anna and I have taken up our first attempts at gardening. Uh, she told me to tell you guys that our garden is perfect. It's glorious. Far from that, what we've learned is gardening is actually really hard. Because at the beginning of the summer, it's having to pull out, or pull out everything that is dead. Having to get nutrient-rich soil and put it in there. And then it's planting the tomatoes and the flowers and the peas and then daily needing to go out and water and care for it. And sometimes with the heat that we've had, it's watering multiple times a day. 
It's going out and removing the weeds. It's trimming the plants to keep them healthy. But the thing is, as we've noticed, if you actually care for it, if you actually do what we ought to in, in watering and cultivating, we actually get to see the fruits of our labor. We actually get to see new growth. So are you cultivating your garden? Parents, you are the chief discipler. If God has given you children, all the shoots around the table, are you nurturing them and raising them up to be children that actually fear the Lord? I mean, we see scripturally that this is the call as parents. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates. I mean, the fear of the Lord is to love him with all that we are, our heart, our soul, and our might. And to teach our children these truths. I mean, our children are a blessing from the Lord. And we, as parents, can actually be a blessing to the children by pointing them to the one from whom all blessings flow. Are we discipling our children? We notice the language he uses. They're olive shoots around your table, which really brings up this idea of, of eating a meal together. And so another encouragement for the families in the room is to really redeem your family mealtime. I know it's easy as a parent of three now to just not always enjoy mealtime, but just kind of feel like it's something to get through. Or I'm sure as your kids get older, it's you have multiple things going on and trying to navigate getting everybody at the table together can be a challenge. But I want us to encourage us to actually redeem that time. To eat the majority of our meals together as a family and to prioritize that. Because we recognize not only is it the physical food and sustenance that our children need, but it's actually the spiritual sustenance as well. And so I encourage us to use our mealtime as a way to actually get a, cultivate discipleship within our own lives and within the lives of our kids. I've been personally really helped by the author and professor Donald Whitney. And what he talks about is these three practical elements of family worship, of read, Pray and sing. It's that simple. Read. Read something from Scripture. I mean, it could be the passage that's going to be preached on Sunday or the passage just came from Sunday. It could be a song. It could be walking through a book slowly. Or for me and my kids, it's typically the Jesus Storybook Bible. Something that they'll actually be able to understand and can engage with. Then it's spending time praying. This doesn't have to be a long pastoral prayer. It can be simple breath prayers. But it's also showing our kids that this is the God who hears us and responds. Encouraging our kids to think through what does it look like to cultivate a life of prayer. Encouraging them to pray. And lastly, one of the most probably uncomfortable for people in the room is the singing part. Of sing praises to God together. And I guarantee you as somebody that's done it, it feels weird at the beginning. But as we start to actually cultivate that into our lives, especially with little kids, there's such a joy to sing Ivy and Ford, singing my God is so big, or waves of mercy, or this little light of mine, these simple truths trying to cultivate into 
our children. My encouragement for the families in the room is do something. Begin cultivating that in some form because something is better than nothing. But you may be here today and you're like, that's great. I am not a husband. I'm not a wife. I don't have kids. So what does this mean for me? Because you recognize this is a psalm that Jesus would have sung. Was not a husband, did not have kids. And yet the beauty and the way that we can sing this and actually rejoice in the blessing of family, we'll unpack this more in the third point, but it's looking to the fact that you actually have a new family in Christ. If you look around the room, this actually is your family. I mean, we see in Mark 10 that Jesus says that everybody who leaves their father and their mother and their siblings will actually receive fathers and mothers and siblings a hundredfold. And how, how does that happen? We only have one mom. And yet we recognize that in the church, we have father figures and mother figures and siblings and even people that are younger in the faith, kind of this childlike mentality. So do you see the church family as your family? Do you see this church family as a blessing? Because even if, you're, if you are in that first category of a parent and a husband, or if you're in the second category of that doesn't fit you yet, you still have the same family here in the corporate community. And are we actually viewing our family as a blessing? Because they are. These are people that we get to help grow in the fear of the Lord. And so what does it look like this week even to try to cultivate that amongst you guys at the branch? We see that the one who fears the Lord will be blessed. Not only will he be blessed, but his family will be blessed. And then thirdly, the psalmist zooms out one more time as he extends to look at the church. Listen as I read five and six. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And we see right at the bat that blessing comes from Zion. Zion is the Temple Mount. And as you guys have been walking through this summer, the Psalms of Ascent, these Psalms would be ones that were sung as the people were heading to Zion, heading to the Temple Mount, because it is at the temple where they all longed to be God's people gathered together in the presence of God. They wanted to be before the presence of God, and yet we know, even then, as they stood in the temple, that God was actually veiled from them. For it was only the high priest who could enter the Holy of Holies, and that was but once a year. And here we see, though, the Lord bless you from Zion. And you see, the beauty is we get to a psalm like this and we see the blessing that we experience is actually different and far better than even the initial people that sang this psalm as they ascended to Zion. Because we know that the ultimate blessing from Zion is actually Jesus Christ himself. The beauty is as we were the ones trying to ascend up to him, Jesus the Son of God actually descended from his heavenly Zion to dwell with his people. God incarnate came and took up residence among his people. 
the beauty of the cross is that when Christ actually died for our sins, we know that the veil was torn. This veil being the holy of holies, what separated God from his people was torn. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the need for a physical temple actually ceased to need to be existed. Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone of the new Zion. I mean, we're told that in 2 Peter 2. And and Peter continues to talk and recognize that not only is this temple not built with rocks anymore, but it's actually built with living stones. I mean, Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. The temple is no longer a building of stones, but a building of people of you and of me. And so here in this third stanza, we, we see the psalmist go from the individual to then recognizing the individual we exist within the corporate. I mean, we see each of the yous are, are singular in this section, but the Jerusalem and Israel imagery point to the many. Jerusalem and Israel ultimately point to the people of God where God will bring blessing and peace. So yes, we see the individual. May your children's children, may you see them, this idea of long life. All of this is happening within the people of God collectively. So today, those who put their faith in God and are part of God's people are the church. And I encourage you this morning that if you, are not, if you don't know Jesus and you don't consider yourself the people of God, to start really thinking through what would it look like to actually take a step today and wrestle with what is God doing in my life? And is God actually calling me to himself to be part of this family? And it begins with fearing the Lord and and obeying him. I mean, I'd love to talk to you or I guarantee you whoever you came with would love to talk with you about what does it look like to actually step into a relationship with God and to join his family. Because this imagery of Jerusalem and Israel are pointing now to the church. He's saying the church will prosper and peace will be upon God's people. And yet, if we look at the church today, I don't think prosperous would be a word that many of us would even put in our top ten words to describe the church. Some of that is out of fear for just buying into the prosperity gospel that seems to be taking over the world. But also when we look, we see the decline in church attendance. We see constant infighting within denominations. We see the rise of Christian nationalism and we're wondering, God, what is going on? We may doubt. And yet we have hope. You see, we know that the church will prosper because God said so. It is God's plan A for working in the world. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, if hell can't prevail against the church, nothing can. And we have 2,000 years of church history to help us remember God's faithfulness to his people, the church. There's been seasons where we've been overflowing in prosperity and there's been seasons in which we feel like we're about to be snuffed out. And yet the church prevails and will continue to prevail until Christ returns. You see, for us, I think we need to actually redefine 
what prosperity actually means. It's not prosperity as the world defines it, nor is it prosperity as the prosperity gospel defines it. That it's health and wealth. Just do the right things and God will bless you. No, it's a prosperity as the way the scriptures define it. The way the gospel defines it. And again, this is a blessing for everyone. Whether you're single or whether you're married. I mean, we see this blessing as we read earlier in our initial scripture reading. I'm going to read it again. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. Listen to this. God has blessed us in Christ with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In the love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. As far as Christ, this is the blessing that we receive in the here and now, looking forward to the future. We've been made right with God. We're at peace with God. Our identity is him and we truly are rich. And the branch, this is is what I want us to remember this morning. That though from a worldly understanding, even this church might not feel prosperous. We actually are because we have God. And we are blessed. And I recognize that this is actually a hard season for the branch as it's been months of having to say goodbye to people that are moving away. And it can be really hard to be like, God, what are you doing? This doesn't feel prosperous. This feels the exact opposite of it. It's a hard season of goodbyes. And yet I urge you to look not at what you've lost, but what you still have. Because you still have God. You see, it doesn't come down to numbers whether that's numbers in the pew or numbers in a budget line. No, it comes down to the fact that you have God himself. It comes down to the fact that he is faithful and that week in and week out, you get faithful gospel preaching here. And week in and week out, you get to gather as God's people, encouraging one another in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's recognizing that the word of God brings dead to life. I mean, talk about blessing. And every week, we get to experience that as the word of God is brought to our life and transforms us. You have members pouring into one another and caring for each other's personal and practical needs. You are blessed because you have the Lord. You're blessed because you're actively, as a community, striving to grow in your fear and love of the Lord. So Psalm 128 actually brings us encouragement today. Yes, it points to the future, and this future is going to be glorious. I mean, as we'll just sing in a moment that we will feast in the house of Zion, we look to the future in expectation. And yet we also recognize that this psalm addresses today. For as followers of Christ, those who fear and actually obey the Lord, we can experience blessing today. Because you've already been blessed by Christ. 
And the beauty is you're blessed with your biological family as well as your spiritual family. So friends, don't lose sight of the goodness of God in your life today. May we be people who fear the Lord, for the fear of the Lord truly does bring blessing. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you that you are the God that blesses his people. Lord God, you are worthy of adoration and praise. And so may we recognize that. May we look to you and your character and your goodness and rejoice that you are our God. That in the midst of hardships that we experience in our individual life, in the midst of hardships we experience even in our congregational life, that you still reign, you are still in control, and you bless your people. So may we walk away encouraged this morning. May we walk away challenged this morning to continually align our lives to you, to worshiping you, to revering you, to obeying you. Because we know that that leads to blessing. The ultimate blessing being we're made right with you. And it's your name we pray. Amen.